All right, let's get into the Word. If you got your Bible, open to Zechariah. The minor prophet Zechariah, he is the next to last book in the Old Testament. So, you know, go to that transition. He's right before Malachi. So we're in this, that being the case, we're in the next to last minor prophet in this series through the minor prophets. So all, we've done all of them except Zechariah and Malachi. So Malachi will be next week. I hope you had a chance to read through Zechariah but. Uh, because I think if you, you'll get a lot more out of it if you did. You, you always get more out of it if you read through it ahead of time. It's certainly true in a book like this, because it's 14 chapters. We're trying to cover it in one week. It's already going to feel like secret church, like just uh, get, trying to get through it, um, and we're not, we're not going to be able to cover everything. If you didn't read it ahead of time, it's not the end of the world. But uh, I know some of you are here for the first time, and that's good. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for visiting. And uh, we've been going through a series through the Minor Prophets, there's 12 of them uh, in the Old Testament, and we've been thinking about each of them a certain way, like this was called the gospel according to Zechariah. We've been talking about each one as the gospel according to whatever prophet we're talking about, and that for a very good reason. I, I, if you've been here, I've explained it so many times, you could probably explain it to me, and that's a good thing. That's by design, but the reason we're doing that is because Scripture is one story. I mean, it's a big, fat book, but it's one story. It's one overarching story. I, it, it, even though it was written... Uh, the Bible was written over a period of, say, 1,500 years or so by almost 40 different men, 39 to be exact, uh, different languages, different cultures. It still tells one story because uh, ultimately behind those 39 different men and those different cultures and those different languages stands one ultimate author. Uh, Paul told Timothy that all, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And therefore, it's profitable for teaching, etc. And Peter said in 2 Peter 1.21 that these men, when they put pen to paper, it says these men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there's one author behind this big fat book written over a long period of time by a lot of different men. That's one thing, by the way, that makes the Bible unique over other holy books. Because, say, for example, the Quran, uh, Muhammad was the only one to receive this message, and that from an angel, you know? So this is just this one man. Um, but isn't it all the more remarkable that not just... You might expect there to be some kind of unity in a book that was written by one man, you know? But what about a book of such diversity to have yet such unity? That's, that's unique. Um, and, uh, and, and so it, it, that's... That's, that's cool. That's, and the, so the New Testament is the completion of this whole story. Therefore, the New Testament teaches us how to read the Old Testament. Tells us what to look for in the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and Jesus said to, to his disciples in Luke 24 twice that, that the Old Testament was about him. Everything in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms was about him, he said. And Paul told uh, the Romans that the gospel was promised beforehand in the prophets. He told the Galatians that the gospel was preached beforehand. In the Old Testament. How so? How, how was the gospel preached beforehand in the Old Testament? Um, a phrase that you see come up sometimes through types and shadows. That's the, that's the phrase that the book of Hebrews, we studied Hebrews last school year. That's the phrase that the book of Hebrews likes to use. That what we have in the, in the Old Testament are shadows of the gospel. Think about that. Think about what that image of a shadow means in terms of Scripture. It, uh, it's like... What, what Hebrews is trying to say is like uh, the reality of Christ 
in the New Testament was, even though he had not come yet, the reality was still the reality, and he was casting a shadow back onto the Old Testament. And so, uh, think about what that imagery even means. A shadow is something that you can see, and you can kind of faintly make out what it's supposed to be, but it's not the actual thing, right? It's a vague outline of the real thing, but it's not the real thing. And that's what you see in the Old Testament. You, you have shadows of the real thing that's coming. The real thing that that's a faint picture of, you've got something much more permanent, much more eternal coming. And so in the Old Testament, you have people, places, um, institutions, events, like the Exodus. All those different things are uh, important, and some of them are amazing in their own right, but they, they are actually giving us just this faint outline of categories that this greater reality of Christ and the gospel are going to fill out and be the, be the actual substance, something more permanent and ultimate. We've seen each minor prophet do that so far in his, in his own way. Today we're coming to Zechariah, and I don't know that we've seen any of them do it as much as Zechariah is going to do it. Um, Zechariah is, is an amazing book. Uh, if you read it ahead of time, you'll know it's not the easiest one to understand. In fact, I'm, I'm guessing that some of you, if you read it ahead of time, you got to chapter 4, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to keep reading, though, because Kevin said I should read it, and you just kept plugging, and you read it, but that, that's about all you can say. Um, you do have to put some work into it to, to get a good grasp of what he's saying. Um, but you have incentive to do it when you realize how much Zechariah is quoted in the New Testament. Did you know that when you come to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you come to the what they call the Passion narratives. Do you know what I mean by the passion narratives? That means those sections of the Gospels that have to do with his crucifixion and the events surrounding his crucifixion. Remember that movie, The Passion of the Christ? That's why it's called that. Anyway, when you come to the portion of the Gospels that have to do with the cross and the events surrounding it and leading up to it, outside of the book of Psalms, Zechariah is quoted most often. Isn't that crazy? Um, or either outright quoted or alluded to over and over again. And, not, and like I said, not just in random places, but in the very climax of all of Scripture, the very cross event of Christ. So, um, without question, we'll, we'll get a heavier dose of the gospel in Zechariah than we've gotten in other prophets. But like we've done, we're going to get a sense of the background of Zechariah, uh, who he was, when he was, what was going on at the time, and then uh, give us some bearings. Uh, and I'll go ahead and say at the outset, it's 14 chapters, so we're not going to read the whole thing. Um, I'm not going to be able to look carefully at the whole thing. It's, it's going to be drinking out of a fire hydrant, I promise you. Um, but we're going to pray and ask God's blessing anyway to help us maximize what we do look at this morning. Father, um, I, I pray and I ask your help to open up this word this morning and, and read it and study it and think through it. We confess that this, this that we're, we're about to study is, is your word. It's your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary word. Without your revelation of these things to us, we don't know who you are. Apart from your revelation to us, we're, uh, we, can't, we can't discover you. You're unknowable to us except for what you tell us about yourself. And so, for those reasons... 
give us a, a heart that's very attentive to what you say here. And uh, give us eyes to see the truth that is here. Give us minds to understand even the hard things that are here. Give me the ability to sp- explain it as clear as I can. Give us ears to hear the truth when we hear it. Hearts to embrace and love the truth when we see it. And wills to obey whatever it might lead us to do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, Quickly, what's the background of this book? What do we know about Zechariah? When did he live? Where did he live? What's going on? If you were able to be here last week when we studied Haggai, you might start reading Zechariah and it might sound a little familiar. Look at verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying dot, dot, dot. It sounds a lot like Haggai. If you were here, you might remember that. because That's because the prophet's... Um, because that's the way Haggai opens in the second year of King Darius. Da, 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 da. Zechariah and Haggai were contemporaries. They were prophesying at the same time, in the same place, to the same people, with a very specific time stamp on it. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And recall from last week that Darius was a king of the ancient empire of Persia. He was a king of Persia. and They were the people who ruled over Judah, ruled over the Jews at the time. The Jews had been in exile by the Babylonians. The Persians overtook them, sent them back home under King Cyrus. Given that the Persians had given them under Cyrus permission to go back home, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple that had been destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar. And they did. They went back and they were rebuilding. They laid the foundation of the temple until some opposition came and uh, put the work to a stop for almost 20 years. After those 20 years went by, God raised up Haggai the prophet who said, Hey guys, get back to the work. Get back to the work of rebuilding the temple. And they did. Uh, And and this time had the support of King Darius. Well, at the same time that that Haggai was was prophesying the word of the Lord to them and encouraging them to get get to uh, the work of rebuilding the temple, God was also speaking through another prophet, Zechariah, to call the people back to the Lord Himself, right? So don't just get back to the work of rebuilding the temple. Come back to Me. Come back to Me. That's the message that Zechariah was bringing. In fact, the thesis of the whole book is right there in the third verse of the first chapter. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. God says through Zechariah, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to Me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you says the Lord of hosts. That's the theme of the whole book, right? Haggai and Zechariah are, are, are tag-teaming it. They're prophesying at the same time. Uh, one saying, rebuild the temple. The other saying, come back to the Lord. Both of those prophets, by the way, are mentioned in the book of Ezra. Here's what Ezra 5, 1 says. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So they're both there, Haggai and Zechariah, basically walking side by side, bringing the word of the Lord. Haggai, rebuild the temple. Zechariah, return to the Lord. Ezra 6.14 tells us, And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, Zechariah the son of Iddo. Just one more thing by way of background. Notice there that he's referred to as Zechariah, the son of Iddo. Well, that's actually his grandfather. In Zechariah, he's the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. 
And that's his grandfather right there. That probably, I don't know if it means anything, it probably means that, that he, it, it was highlighting the fact that Zechariah was part of a prominent priestly family. And he was both a priest and a prophet and from a prominent family. Um, and uh, so there we go. So what does he say? And, and that's what we're after this morning. This book is a long book, so we have to map it out pretty carefully. And here's how I want us to break it up and think about it. It's 14 chapters. The book does divide up pretty naturally in three parts. The first six chapters, Zechariah 1 through 6, um, describe eight different night visions that Zechariah received. Um, It feels a little bit like the book of Revelation, but not quite that bad, right? But it's a little bit. That's chapters 1 through 6, night visions, eight of them. Then in the middle of the book, chapters 7 and 8, it kind of changes scenes, and all of a sudden it goes back to narrative form, story form, and you have this group of people, this delegation from the town of Bethel coming to Jerusalem to talk to Zechariah, and they basically have a question about fasting, which sounds random uh, at first, but it's not actually It's quite important, and I want us to see why. And then the the last six, chapters 9 through 14, go back to typical what you think of when you think prophets, these oracles that they're delivering, these prophetic oracles, kind of like poetry almost. But 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14 chapters, they are all basically describing this one event, this one future event from different angles and different perspectives. Okay? That's... That's a haul to try to get in one Sunday morning, but uh, we're going to do our best with it. So that's how it divides itself up, and here's how I want us to think about it. From chapters 1 through 6, I want us to think about the call to return. Like we saw from chapter 1, verse 3, Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. And what do these eight night visions have to do with that? Right? So chapters 1 through 6 are going to be the call to return, and what do these... Eight night visions have to do with this call for them to return to the Lord. Then from chapters 7 and 8, we're going to think about the covenant for the remnant. The covenant for the remnant. It's This question about fasting, this is an important section of the book. It does shed a little bit of light of something we see in the New Testament and in our own hearts. And finally, from chapters 9 through 14, the coming of the Redeemer. As if it hasn't been (laughs) clear throughout the first six chapters and it's unmistakable in the final six. So let's, let's get to it and think first about the call to return. First six chapters. Like I said, the guiding thought of the whole book is verse 3 of chapter 1. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. So Haggai is urging them to re- rebuild the temple. Zechariah is urging them to return to the Lord. And, and don't be like the previous generations that went before you. Uh, who were rebellious against me, who had hearts hard against me, who caused you to go into exile in the first place. And as incentive, as incentive for them to return. So he's calling them to return, and immediately upon calling that, he gives them incentive to return. And as incentive, he gives Zechariah these eight visions. Uh, he's describing in these visions what he is doing and what's coming by his sovereign power and plan. Zechariah says in verse 7, when these visions came, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. He remembers the very day 
these visions came. After what he saw, I probably would too. Uh, to translate <laughs> that date and today, he received these visions on February the 15th, 519 B.C. February the 15th, 519 B.C. So let me say a couple of things about these visions in general before we look at any of them in particular. When you read these on your own, um, they run right right after, the, I saw this, then I saw this, then I saw this, then I saw this, then I saw this, without any kind of break. And only one date is given. So it's very likely that he received all eight of these visions all in the same night. Like, February 15th was a big day. Eight visions, boom, uh, at night. Second of all, if you made the valiant attempt to read this ahead of time, it's easy to feel distracted or overwhelmed with what you're reading because there's, there's so many details given. And there's so many, like, not only is there one horses, there are four horses, and, and they're all a different color. Like, what? like, you get distracted by all these little details. What details am I supposed to, what are important, what's not important? Well, the good thing about these visions is, and if you read it, you know this, that he sees this vision, but this angel of the Lord is accompanying him all the way. And every, well, almost every vision, he's, he asks the angel, what, what, what's up with this? And the angel explains it to him. And he, you know, if you'll follow the angel's leading, he'll tell you what's important in the vision. That's a good thing. Um, all right. Well, there's eight different visions. And the first five of them, all right, eight visions, the first five of them essentially are the Lord describing uh, his return to the people. And, and, and which is the first incentive for them to return to him. In the first five of the eight, this is God saying, here's how I'm returning to you, you return to me. That's verse five. And the last three, six, seven, and eight, describe how the Lord's going to destroy all those who continue to rebel and, and remain in disobedience and opposed to him. That's the second incentive to return. Return to me because I'm returning to you. And return to me because if you don't, this is the judgment coming, okay? We're about to jump into the deep end of the pool, but it's worth it, so let's get to it. The first vision uh, is in chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, and this is clearly marked in your Bible, as it is in mine probably, as the, a vision of a horseman, and that's what it is. <laughs> he sees a horseman riding. We don't have time to read all of these. I'll, I'll, I'll draw your attention to a few verses here and there. He sees a horseman riding with other horses following him. Um, and, uh, and there, these horses are different colors, but I don't think, I don't necessarily think that's, that's a, a very important point. In verse nine, Zechariah asks the angel, what does it mean? These horses that are, that are riding. And the answer, uh, is given in verse 10. It says in verse 10, the angel says, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. You see that? These horsemen, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Now, what would that have meant to Zechariah in his day? Well, it would have been significant for them to know that there are these horsemen that have gone out from the Lord to patrol the earth. Why would it have been significant? Because who is king in this day? Darius is king. Who was he the king of? The king of the Persian Empire. Judah are their servants. The Persian Empire was a vast empire. There's no way that Darius in the capital city could on his own know what was going on in all the kingdom. And so, 
one of the things that, that the Persian Empire had in place was horsemen. Horsemen who would go patrolling all throughout the kingdom, different territories of the kingdom. They would ride throughout the kingdom, observe what was going, in different, going on in different segments, and come and report back to the king. So if there's, if there's rioting or there's something going on, rebellion in one part of the territory, the king would know about it because the patrolmen would tell him about it. When, they saw, when the people would see these horsemen riding through their town, they would have been reminded that we're under the rule of another. Right? We're under the rule of another. And, uh, and that that ruler over them sees and knows everything that's happening in his kingdom. Well, when this first vision is given to Zechariah, the vision is of what? Horsemen riding, patrolling the earth. And they're coming from the Lord. Right? So it would have been a reminder to them right off the bat that he, in fact, not Darius, not any other king, the Lord is sovereign over them and sovereign over his world. And he sees and he knows all that's happening in his world. And so the Lord is encouraging them in this first vision that he is sovereign and he is returning to them with good designs and nothing's going to stop what he plans to do. In verse 13, it says in verse 13 that the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And look how it ends in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Their exile in Babylon was over. But that was just a, a foretaste of something infinitely greater he was about to do. And it was going to happen. He's patrolling the earth. It's going to happen, right? He's sovereign. That's vision number one. The second vision at the end of chapter one in verses 18 through 21. Uh, it's, it's, it's short. It's a vision of horns and, a cra and craftsmen. <laughs> it's short, so let's just read it. Verses 8, it's not on the screen, just look in your Bible. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these? Same question I would ask. And he said to me, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, These are coming. What are, what are these coming to do? Exactly. He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, these four craftsmen, have come to terrify them. To cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So obviously the key words in this vision are horns and craftsmen. Hence the title, Vision of Horns and Craftsmen. Um, and sometimes the, the, what we just saw in the first... Um, vision about the, the horsemen patrolling. It's, sometimes it's good to know what was going on in the current circumstance of the, you know, the Persian patrolmen and everything. Most of the time when you come to a vision, it's helpful just to know your Old Testament, right? And be familiar with image, images and ideas in the Old Testament, earlier in the Old Testament. And I think that's what's going on here. Because in the Old Testament, horns, horns are very, if not most often, representative of military power, political powers, nations that are mighty, right? If you've read Daniel, right? Daniel uses this imagery of, 
a lot. Um, and, and I think that's the meaning here. These, these horns, these four horns that he saw were, were military and political powers in the world. Seemingly earthly might. Also in the Old Testament, the mention of craftsmen here. Um, what, what craftsmen might make you think of are when they were uh, building the tabernacle. And when they were building the temple. You, you have mention of craftsmen. So, for example, in Exodus 35, uh, when they were building the tabernacle, it talks about craftsmen who were filled with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to design different aspects of the tabernacle and later the temple. So, the, to put these two things together, he sees, he sees horns and he sees craftsmen. He sees four horns, four craftsmen. I'm not going to carry it away with four, the number four, but horns and craftsmen, right? And, and, and these, these horns are military, earthly military and political powers and nations in the world. And these craftsmen call to mind this tabernacle, this temple that's being built. And look again what it says in verse 21 uh, about these craftsmen. These craftsmen have come to terrify, to terrify them, that is the horns, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. What does all this mean? It means that the, this temple, that you know, Haggai is saying, get back to the work of rebuilding this temple, guys, while Zechariah is saying, return to me. This, this temple that they're rebuilding in Jerusalem was pointing to something greater, right? And this something greater would not only be, bring restoration and salvation to the people, but this this greater thing that this temple is pointing forward to, it would also terrify the nations of the earth. It would also terrify and overthrow the powers of the earth who stand against the Lord. So basically what you have in these first two visions is the Lord is sovereign over the nations. He's patrolling the nations. And something's about to go down. Something's about to go down. I'm going to bring something that one day will terrify the nations of the earth. Question is what and how. The third vision is all of chapter two, and it's the vision of a man with a measuring line. Uh, and in this vision, he reveals to to Zechariah that what he was about to do is he's he's building God while they're while they are busy rebuilding a physical Jerusalem and rebuilding a physical temple. God is at work through that in something else. He's God. He says is at work building a new Jerusalem of people. And, and, and it won't be like the old one. How so? Well, verse 4 of chapter 2 says it's going to be a Jerusalem without walls. Without walls. And for another, verse 11 says, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst, and you shall know that the Lord has sent me to you. This is a Jerusalem that God is building without walls, and will be composed of many nations, not just the Jews. When you come to the end of the, of the Bible, it's, it's one story. When you come to the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, you have this description of a new Jerusalem, right? And how is it described? How is this new Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21 described? It's described as a people, not a place. Look at the description in Revelation 21:2. And I saw the holy city. This is Revelation 21:2. Saw the holy city. New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven 
from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I wouldn't describe a city like that, prepared as a bride, but a people. It's a people, hence no walls, hence no walls. This is what the Lord is this is what the Lord is building in the vision of Zechariah 2. This measuring line it symbolizes his promise to protect his people so that nothing will stop his purpose and I love the last line of chapter 2. Be silent all flesh before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. These, these four craftsmen of the second vision are, are a vision of rebuilding this temple. But this, this temple is, is pointing to something much greater that the Lord's doing. The Lord's building a whole new Jerusalem, and it's a people. So he, vision one, he's sovereign over the nations. Vision two, he, what he's building will terrify the nations and, and will rule over them. Vision three, what he is building is a people from all the nations. But how? How's he building this people? That brings us to the most prominent vision of the book in chapter 3. The vision of Joshua, the high priest. This is an amazing chapter. Look in your Bible and follow along as I read the first five verses. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, this, this, this new Jerusalem, to rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments and I said let them put a clean turban on his head so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments and the angel of the Lord was standing by well who in the Lord is this angel um, that, that, I, I, I think that this angel is another example of to use a fancy word an Old Testament Christophany Sometimes you say theophany. What is a Christophany? It's an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament prior to the incarnation. Why would I say that? Well, just look at what this angel does. So Satan is there to accuse. He's standing right beside Joshua the high priest, standing there to accuse him, who is standing there in filthy clothes. What is that supposed to mean? Is it just really about filthy clothes? What do the filthy clothes represent? His His sin. He's clothed in his sin and wickedness. Satan is there to accuse him. Notice in this passage that before a word gets out of Satan's mouth, the Lord rebukes him. So Satan is there to accuse, but he never gets a chance to do it. <laughs> but notice what the angel does as, as Joshua is standing there, dirty. He said, the angel says in verse 4, to remove the filthy garments. And the angel says that he, the angel, has taken away Joshua's iniquity. By the way, angel can just mean messenger in the Old Testament. 
Don't think I'm saying that Jesus is an angel. In this case, he was a messenger. And the angel says that he, the angel, will put, will clothe Joshua in pure vestments. That's some angel. Right? No mere angel can do that. Remove your iniquity and clothe you in righteousness? But look at what else this angel says down at the end of verse 8. The angel says, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, capital B, which in other prophets, particularly Isaiah and Jeremiah, this branch means the coming Messiah, who will do exactly in space and time what this angel just did to Joshua in a vision. Take his sin away and clothe him in pure righteousness. Verse 9 says at the end, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This angel of the Lord who took away Joshua's iniquity was prefiguring the Messiah, what he would do when he came. And it would be through his work and through his atoning work that he would build this new Jerusalem of his people from all the nations. His work would be the foundation of that city. And the fifth vision in chapter 4, which is a vision of the golden lampstand, is, is basically a promise from the Lord of His presence with His people to bring about their salvation. It would be a work that, that only His Spirit would bring about. As it says famously in verse 6, Not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The Messiah would come and deal with their sins, and the Spirit would come and bring those sinners to the Savior. So think of, put all this together. You've got the first five of these eight visions. I know this is, the, I told you this is the deep end of the pool. It's, it's, it's tedious. But in these first five visions, he has reminded the people that he is sovereign. He has shown them that he and his people will rule over all the nations one day, terrify those who oppose him. He has shown them that, that he is building a new Jerusalem that will be his people from all the nations of the earth. They will be purified from their sins by this coming Savior. And they will be brought to them, that Savior by His Holy Spirit. That's how He's building this place and this people. That's the clearest gospel. That's the clearest gospel we have seen in these prophets so far. It's preached beforehand. And on this beautiful promise, the Lord says, Return to me. This is what I'm coming to do for you. In the last three visions that we won't belabor, in chapters 5 and 6, these are essentially judgments on all those who don't heed this call to return. That he one day he's going to rule the nations in righteousness. And the last vision, by the way, ends just like the first one began. This vision of four chariots. What are these four chariots doing? They're coming out from the presence of the Lord and they're patrolling. They're going to make it happen. At the end of chapter 6, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, 9 through... 15, we're given another clear picture of this coming Messiah as part of his call for the people to return to him in repentance and faith. In chapters 6, verses 9 through 15, there is what, what we call a, a sign action. A sign action, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's an action that's a sign uh, of something else. It's an action that takes place that's a clear sign of something greater coming. And what happens in those verses is that the Lord tells Zechariah to go to Joshua the high priest and put a crown on his head 
That's, that's what he does. Go to the high priest, Joshua, and put a crown on his head. And when he put the crown on the high priest's head, this is what he says in verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. This is a sign action. Joshua the high priest in that day was not a royal king. But he was a sign pointing to another Joshua coming. In Hebrew, Joshua. We know him as Jesus. Right? Coming. Who would be a greater high priest. And who would come in the line of David and be a greater king. A king and a priest. And so at this point in, in Zechariah's book, the, he has basically given the whole gospel and told them who to look for, who's going to bring it. But at this point, the book kind of completely changes. The next two chapters, chapters 7 and 8, the scene changes from visions to something you might understand. <laughs> uh, and, and I'm going to call it the covenant for the remnant. Let's look at that quickly, Ch chapter 7 and 8. Like I said earlier, chapter 7 opens up with a group of people coming from Jerusalem, coming to Jerusalem from Bethel. Bethel was a town, it was only about five miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, yeah, it says in verse 2, Now the people of Bethel had sent these guys, that I can't pronounce their names, to entreat the favor of the Lord. They're, they don't live in Jerusalem. They live in Bethel just outside of Jerusalem. I mean, they had been in exile for 70 years. This wasn't a crowded place. They weren't hurting for room. What does that suggest to you? That they don't live in Jerusalem. They live just outside of Jerusalem. It means they're not... It suggests that they're, they're really not involved with the work of rebuilding the temple. Right? They're not there. They're just outside. They're not committed to the work. And if they're not committed to the work, they're probably not committed to the Lord. Hmm. We know this from what is said later. They come to Zechariah. They, they travel to Jerusalem, the five miles. They come to Zechariah and probably Haggai too. Because verse 3 says they came to the prophets, plural. Zechariah and Haggai. And in verse 3, they, they, they feign spirituality. And they ask in verse 3, should I weep and abstain, that means fast, in the fifth month, if I, as I've done so many years? Should I weep and fast in the fifth month, as I've done for so many years? What a weird question. Uh, don't get high and mighty yet, though. What kind of question is that? They come and say, should I weep, should I fast in the fifth month? Like I've done for so many years. What are they? What are they? What are they getting at? They're basically saying this: Are we doing the right works? That's going to bring about God's blessing. Are we doing the right things? That's going to bring God's blessing on our people. What does Zechariah say in verses five and six? Say to all the people of the land and the priests: When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month. And in this, this is the Lord speaking to them. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it from me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Obvious rhetorical questions. 
But what's he basically saying? These, should I continue fasting? I don't know. You tell me they're just dead rituals that you're performing. Were you doing it for me? Ever? For 70 years? Were you, were you ever really seeking my face? Or were you just doing your works for your work's sake? And thinking I would be impressed with your fasting and reward you for it. It reminds you of when... Well, no, I, I, look at this other thing, and I'll tell you what it reminds you of. Look at, look at verses 9 and 10. This, this is the other thing that he says. He says, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you desire, devise evil against another in your heart. It reminds you of when Jesus told the Pharisees, Look, I know you tithe. You tithe mint and dill and cumin. You go in your spice cabinet and you tithe. But you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. And it says, it says as a response in verse 12, they, they made their hearts diamond hard. Lest they should hear the law. They made their, their hearts diamond hard against the, the Lord and His Word. They refused to listen. They refused to return. And the Lord gave them up for it. Diamond hard against the Lord, even though they had been fasting for 70 years. Like clockwork. It's easier to return to ritual and works than it is to return to the Lord. But that opens up into chapter 8 where the Lord reminds this people that He's still saving, as hard as they are, He's still saving a remnant. And He will do it sovereignly. If left to ourselves, we'd never come. If left to ourselves, we would all harden ourselves diamond hard. But look at, look at just how, look how sovereignly He speaks in chapter 8. He says in um, verse 3, I have returned and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. He says in verse 7, I will save my people. He says in verse 8, I will bring them to dwell, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. He says in verse 12, I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. He says in verse 15, So again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Fear not. In verse 22, near the end, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. This is the covenant that God had made with the remnant, that He was going to fulfill His promises to bring about His Savior and would save them sovereignly from their sins. And this is His promise to you if you're trusting in Christ. Which brings us to the final chapters. We've got we to gotta fly. The coming of the Redeemer. All right? The last six chapters of this book Chapters 9 to 14, each chapter is a different angle on the, on the same salvation that's coming. And in many ways, they repeat the same themes we saw in the visions. But I just want to point out how quickly, how practically, each chapter points us forward to Christ and the cross. So we're just going to, we're going to fly through this. So if you're looking in chapter 9, look at verse 9. Rejoice O greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and, and having salvation as he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that sound familiar? 
Matthew and John both quote that verse at the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem during the final week of His earthly life. In chapter 10, verse 10, it describes what Christ would come to do. It says, I will bring them home from the land of Egypt. That's, talk, that's describing what Christ would do like a new exodus, which is exactly how Christ Himself described it in Luke 9, 31. In chapter 11, verse 13, it mentions thir- this 30 pieces of silver that He threw them back into the house of the potter, which is a, an allusion to what Judas did when he betrayed Jesus into the hands of the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Look at the phrase in the middle of chapter 12, verse 10. When they look on me, on whom they have pierced. Jesus himself quotes this, in, or John quotes this in John 19, 37, after Jesus died on the cross. They will look on me, whom they have pierced. They, when, he said that when they pierced his side. Then look at chapter 13, verse 7, in the middle of that verse. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quoted this in Matthew 26, 31 when his disciples were fearful and fell away on the night that he was betrayed. Here meaning that we will have the same temptations and struggles in our lives. But then it ends, and I'll end with this, in chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, with a promise that God will keep his people to the very end. On that day, verses 8 and 9, on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer and winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth, On that day, the Lord will be one and His name one. This is an allusion to the new heavens and the new earth. And the assurance that all the the promises of this book to His people will come to pass. Think about the gospel that you've just seen here in this book. God will save His people. This is the message. God will save His people. He will cause them to believe by His Spirit on the Savior who would be given in their place. And He will cause His people to persevere to the end and be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the gospel according to Zechariah.